You're listening to the Redemption City Church podcast. To learn more about Redemption City Church, visit us online at rccbaltimore.org. Today's message comes from Pastor Adam Mutasib. All right, as we start, I want to transport you to a new location. Why don't you go ahead and just close your eyes for a moment with me. We're, we're leaving rainy Baltimore on October 2nd. Say October 2nd. We're leaving this place. I know you guys, after this service, you got to pick up the kids. you got a to-do list. Tomorrow's Monday. You start work. For some of you nurses, you just got off work. We're praying for you. I don't know how you worked all night and then came here. So you got all this stuff going on in your life. I know you do. Close your eyes with me. We're not here anymore. We are in Aruba. Man, you and I are by the beach. We got a chair overlooking the ocean. The weather's perfect. You got a nice drink in your hands. You got your beautiful wife next to you or your amazing husband next to you or a good friend. I mean, doesn't that feel, just put yourself there. Doesn't that feel great? Your only problem tonight is how am I going to get my steak cooked? Man, everything feels so serene, doesn't it? You can look out for a second. It kind of feels like the intro of that last song, you know. That feels so good, man. <laughs> I just love when life feels like that. And it feels that way in the Caribbean. You know, there's a level of chill that you reach on day five of vacation that is hard to replicate, isn't it? And I don't tend to have that kind of chill, serene feeling much in the real world. I don't know about you, but it tends to get stressful pretty quick. You know, uh, you know that song, Don't Worry, Be Happy? Don't worry about a thing. Every little thing is going to be all right. Sounds great in a tiki hut, doesn't it? Sounds horrible, like the worst advice ever in real life. Right? I mean, the, the, look at the lyrics uh, of this song. Ain't got no place to lay your head. Somebody came and took your bed. Don't worry. Be happy. <laughs> A landlord says your rent is late. He may have to litigate, take you to court. Don't worry. Be happy. I love that when I'm in the Caribbean. I don't really like it when I'm uh, doing real life, you know? Could you imagine, like... <laughs> If somebody came to my, appoint, like, to my office for a pastoral counseling appointment, and they came in with the biggest problem, and this was my advice, don't worry, just be happy. Every little thing is going to be all right, as Bob Marley would say, right? You husbands in the room, I dare you, please try that with your wife this afternoon. <laughs> honey, I could use some help with the kids. Don't worry, honey, everything's going to be all right. <laughs> be happy. Yeah, you'll come back next week with some bruises, and we can talk. You know, we love these songs, we love these vacations, but the problem is, is that Aruba can't last forever, can it? And these songs sound great on vacation, but they don't really comfort us in real life. And it's, and the studies recently are supporting the fact that you and I are really, really stressed out right now. The American Psychological Association recently sounded the alarm on American stress. They said, we are facing a national mental health crisis regarding stress that could yield serious health and social consequences for years to come. You know, according to a recent study, about 8 out of 10 Americans are stressed out about something right now. So look to the person to your left and your right. Two of you are stressed. Probably all three. (laughs) (laughs) About something. I've asked many of you, like, how are you doing? And, and almost everyone says busy, stressed, right? And what were we stressed about? The rising cost of gas and groceries. We're stressed about exams that will determine the trajectory of your career. We're stressed about our residency or our, our schooling. We're stressed about difficult decisions we had to make last week or will make this week that will determine the, the rest of our lives. We're stressed about uh, the fact that I said yes to more than I can handle, and I feel overwhelmed right now. We, we stress about our relationships transitioning, and life doesn't feel stable. We feel stressed, and therefore we feel trapped, helpless, powerless. And Aruba, don't worry, be happy. Bob Marley 
great as they are, aren't going to solve the issue, are they? They can't heal and cure our anxious hearts. Well, friends, Acts 23 and 24 is good news for our anxious souls. It's a, a spiritual joint for our stress. Welcome to RCC. I am a, I'm a dealer this morning and anti-stress. And I got something better for you than a joint. I got some gospel. Amen, I got you. The point of this message, friend, is don't freak out. Turn to your neighbor and tell them, don't freak out. And we don't have to freak out. We don't have to be stressed because Paul is under the most stressful of circumstances in Acts 23 and 24. He finds himself between the weight of two world powers. The Jews, the Sanhedrin, hatch an undercover assassination plot to murder him. And he has to escape Jerusalem Mission, Mission Impossible style, which seems impossible for this little Jewish theologian. And on the other side of him, he's got the Romans, which is the strongest power in the world at the time. They put him in a courtroom full of his enemies with a prosecuting attorney named Tertullus. And they point out, this guy's a plague. He's starting riots. And they've bribed the judge, Felix. So Paul is alone in a corrupt court with no advocate other than Jesus. We're in a very tense situation. I, I promise you, whatever you're dealing with, whatever stress you're facing this morning, it ain't as bad as this. John Stott says Paul's chances of surviving are the equivalent of a butterfly surviving being run over by a steamroller. Not too good. And yet, throughout the text, we see Paul acting like he's in Aruba. He's at peace. Don't worry, be happy seems to be something that works for him because he knows God is acting sovereignly in his life. Even in the middle of anxious circumstances, you know, this story, as you read it, it reads a lot like a suspense thriller, which I really enjoy watching, but I don't very much enjoy living. Top Gun was great at AMC in the recliner. It would not be very fun in the cockpit. And it's a lot easier to believe in the sovereignty of God than it is to actually rely on the sovereignty of God when life gets hard. We know theoretically we can trust God, but do you know it experientially? Honest assessment, I want you to really think through this scenario. If you knew that on your way home, your car was going to break down and it was going to cost $1,000 to fix, would you still be able to remain calm right now? If you knew you'd be fired tomorrow, I know some of you have been in school for two decades, it seems. You worked all this time. If you knew you would be fired tomorrow, would you still have... A heart and mind that is still. Or for you stay-at-home moms, perhaps, if you knew if you were to drop your kid off at school tomorrow and you knew your kid was going to get bullied and there's nothing you could do about it, would your heart and mind be still? Here's another assessment of your piece. If someone you really dearly loved, you knew they were going to get diagnosed today with cancer, would you still have a deep sense of inner peace? Well, friend, these are real-life truths that Paul held on to that enabled him to stay calm and trust God in the middle of it all. To have what I call a gospel chill. Why don't you say that with me? Gospel chill. Go ahead. Gospel chill. Man, it feels good to say, don't it? Dun -dun 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 you know, gospel chill is really the, what I titled this message, and it's one of the many blessings of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and it simply means that God, that the God who controls the universe at the same time loves me. He knows my name, and he loves me. So ultimately, I have nothing to worry about. Everything that happens is a part of his plan. And so if my father who runs the universe is never panicking, then I don't ever need to either. And we see it in this text. How do we get a gospel chill well, it's the sovereignty of God that gives us comfort, and it's the supremacy of God that gives us boldness. This text is a promise that don't worry, be happy is actually possible only for the Christian. 
because of God's sovereignty and supremacy. Let's jump in. How do we get a gospel chill? Well, the sovereignty of God gives us comfort. You know, we pick up where we left off last week in verse 12. And if you remember last week, Paul was before this council of these Jewish uh, leaders, the Sanhedrin, they wanted to kill him, but Paul brings up the resurrection, and they start arguing with one another, and they can't decide what to do with this guy, Paul, who's preaching the gospel. So Lysias, the Roman tribune who's the, over the region, takes Paul, puts him in prison, but the Jews have not forgotten about Paul. They still want him dead. So you look at verse 12, when it was day, the Jews made a plot and bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor drink till they had killed Paul. That is quite an oath. I'm not going to eat or drink until this guy is dead. I'd imagine that'd be like a couple day long oath, but if, for Pastor Wilson, that would probably be like an hour long oath. That man is always snacking on something. Have you seen his like green Gatorade bottle? I don't even want to know what kind of bacteria is in that. He is always <laughs> drinking that thing. Love him. But so they're like, man, we're not going to eat or drink until we kill this guy. Verse 13, there were more than 40 who made this conspiracy. So 40 of the 70 members of the Sanhedrin make this oath to kill Paul. Now, this is interesting because the Sanhedrin were supposed to be the experts in the Old Testament, experts in the law. You know, those crazy rules like don't murder, don't bear false witness. <laughs> Who would have thought? They're supposed to know that pretty well. Well, so much for the law. So much for justice. You see, this scenario is an example of what can happen when people with an outward display of religion, but no heart changed by Jesus, what they can do when they're given power. They're willing to throw out the Ten Commandments to accomplish their political agenda. And isn't this so contrary to Jesus, what these men are doing? These men vow not to eat or drink until their enemy dies. Jesus vowed not to eat or drink until he died for his enemies. They're the antithesis of Jesus. So they, verse 14, they went to the chief priests and elders and said, We have strictly bound ourselves by an oath. We won't taste food till we kill Paul. Now, therefore, along with the council, give notice to the tribune to bring Paul down to you as though you were going to determine his case more exactly, and we are ready to kill him before he comes near. So basically what they're saying is, let's pretend like we're going to put Paul on trial again, and when he comes to the courtroom, we'll kill him. We'll assassinate him. Now, you just think about this scenario. How in the world is this little guy named Paul, who has written a couple books, going to escape this? The Sanhedrin wants to kill him. They're the most powerful ruling Jewish force in the world. It's almost like the American government saying they want to kill you. Like, if the American government wants to kill you, you're done. They got tanks. They got the CIA. Paul is pressed in from all sides with no chance seemingly of surviving. He's in prison, and this group of people of power want to kill him. And maybe you feel like Paul this morning. You feel pressed in from all sides, saying, I don't even know how I'm going to survive this much longer. I don't know how much I can, can do this parenting thing. It's about to take me out. Work is about to assassinate me. This new move is killing me. Church life, it sounded great in the sermon, but it's way harder in real life. Baltimore City is killing me. If I see one more rat in my trash can, I am done. But this text is an encouragement to the, to the weary Christian soul that is tempted to be anxious. Look at the sovereignty of God in this hopeless situation. Verse 16, the son of Paul's sister heard of their ambush, so he went and entered the barracks and told Paul. Now, this is the only mention of Paul's family in the entire New Testament. Apparently, Paul had a sister, and his sister had a son, which makes Paul an uncle. Which, by the way, would it not be awesome to have the Apostle Paul as your uncle? Merry Christmas, nephew. I got you an advanced copy of the book of Philemon. <laughs> I was really hoping for a PlayStation, but thanks, Uncle Paul. <laughs> uncle Paul's in jail, and he's a Roman citizen, so he gets visitors, and his nephew, his little nephew, comes to visit him, but he overhears the Sanhedrin assassination plot. Now, scholars are divided as to how old this nephew was. Some say late teens or early 20s. I doubt that, as New Testament scholar Thomas Triner says about verse 19. If you read verse 19, the tribune took him by hand and going aside asked him privately, what is it that you have to tell me? Schreiner's like, this seems to indicate to me that this is a little boy. I don't know many commanders grabbing a 20-year-old man by the hand and leading him along. So I think what happens is that this really young little boy, this little nephew, comes to visit his Uncle Paul in prison, 
But he overhears this assassination plot, and they don't, these Sanhedrin council members don't think much of this little boy. I mean, what are they, what's he going to do? But it's amazing what little ears can pick up and repeat, isn't it? I have found this out the hard way. My son, uh, I was scrolling through TikTok, and he's been in the background, and uh, I think he heard one of the songs that was on a TikTok that I was listening to. It was like a version of the ABCs. It's a popular modern song. Now, you might have heard it, so we're in the living room just chilling, and my son, all of a sudden, he starts singing his ABCs, but it's a little different. He's like, A, B, C, D, E, F, U. <laughs> my wife and I were like, all right, no more TikTok around the kids. <laughs> That's a popular modern song, man. And he just repeated it. We, we don't say that anywhere else, son, okay? <laughs> and... Man, a kid, that's what he does, right? He hears something and he repeats it. And that's what happens. This little kid hears the, the Sanhedrin talk about this assassination and he repeats it to Paul and then they tell the Roman commander. Verse 20, the, the kid says, The Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul down to the council tomorrow as though they were going to inquire somewhat more closely about him. But do not be persuaded by them, for more than 40 of their men are lying in ambush for him who have bound themselves by an oath, neither to eat or drink till they have killed him. And now they are ready, waiting for your consent. The tribune dismissed the young man, charging and telling no one that you've informed of these things. And look what happens. Verse 23. The tribune, hearing this assassination attempt, called two of the centurions, the, you know, these Roman general kind of guys, get ready 200 soldiers with 70 horsemen and 200 spearmen to go as far as Caesarea at the third hour of the night. Man, that is, that is some protection. We're going to get Paul out of this situation, out of Jerusalem, by sending an army of 500 men to take him to the Roman province of Caesarea. And that is rolling deep. I mean, how many guys did the enemy have? I got 40 dudes on a Jewish council. How many we got? Well, we got 200 infantry, 70 cavalry, and 200 snipers. I think we're going to be okay. And Paul doesn't just get the best protection known to the world at the time. Verse 24 the, the tribune says, also provide mounts for Paul to ride and bring him safely to Felix, the governor. Paul gets to ride first class, man. He probably got unlimited pretzels and maybe some nice Italian wine on the way. He's riding on a horse. He didn't have to walk. I mean, do you see the sovereignty and the power of God in this hopeless scenario? How man's plans fall like a house of cards under the winds of God's power. This is Proverbs 21 come alive, that the heart of the king is in the hands of the Lord, and he turns it whichever way he wills. And I want you to see two truths about the sovereignty of God that comfort us, that give us a gospel chill, even when things feel like they did for Paul back then. Here's the first. God's promises comfort you in a time of struggle. Let his promises comfort you in times of struggle. You know, you remember Paul comes to Jerusalem alone with just a few Gentile friends, knowing he'd be persecuted and maybe killed. And how does he leave Jerusalem, even though there's an assassination attempt, with half the Roman commander's army as his entourage on the first century version of a Rolls Royce? That is some sovereignty coming alive right there. You just look at the beginning of the text, and you're like, how is he going to make it out of this thing alive? Well, if you remember, last week we saw at the end of the text, Jesus promised Paul. He said, you have testified about me in Jerusalem, and you will testify about me in Rome. I'm not done with you yet. Jesus promised that. And you look at this, and you're like, how is that promise going to come alive, man? Like, Paul is in a hopeless situation. But his promise comes alive through a little boy, a conversation that's too loud, and a Roman commander. And this is a common theme in the Bible, friends. You just read your Bible. God swoops in and fulfills this promise at the very last second. God swooped in after he promised Abraham a son, and when Abraham is 100, boom, son, check. God swoops in and saves Israel when they're between Egypt and the Red Sea, and God swoops in, splits the Red Sea, promise fulfilled, check. God promised David that his throne would endure forever, even though Saul and his army sent... Hundreds of people to kill David, and he narrowly escapes death. God swoops in, fulfills the promise, check. Even Joshua says to Israel at the end of his life, not one word of all the good promises that the Lord had made to the house of Israel had failed. All came to pass. And I'm here to tell you this morning that all of God's promises came true for Israel, they came true for Paul, and they will come true for you. God is, 
has and always will fulfill his promises to his people. And you can bank on that. And if he really does fulfill his promise, that means you can chill out, man. There's a whole book of promises here. It really means that if he really does give rest to his weary people like he promises in Matthew 11. It means that he really does have grace that is sufficient in all of our weaknesses like he promises in 2 Corinthians. He really does renew our strength like eagle's wings like he promises in Isaiah 40. He really does have a wonderful plan for your life. He's not done with you like he says in Jeremiah 29. He really means we don't have to be anxious about anything in this life according to Philippians 4. It really means he bore all of our sins on the cross. Not half, not some, all of them so you don't have to worry about them anymore because he already paid for them. It really means that all your circumstances, even the really crappy ones, are working together for your eternal good, like he says in Romans 8, 28. It means if we believe in him, we will never perish but have eternal life like he promises in John 3, 16. It means he will meet all your needs in Christ Jesus like he promises in Philippians 4. It means he has blotted out, he will never blot out your name from the book of life like he promises in Revelation 3. And these are just a few. Come on. 2 Peter 1.4 says, God has given us his many great and precious promises, plural. And they all come to pass. God is not like, you know, your dad who promises to take you to the zoo after school and you're sitting on the porch and he never shows up. God don't roll like that. If he promised it, he's going to do it. Hebrews 10.23, he who promised is what? He's faithful, man. He's faithful. And so I want to encourage you, if you feel pressed in like Paul between maybe not the Romans and the Jews, you feel pressed in by work and family life or friends talking bad about you and, and a new move, whatever it is you're dealing with, whatever's stressing you out, fight back your anxiety with a promise. My kids aren't sleeping at night. I'm exhausted. I'm going to lean into that promise in Isaiah 40. He gives power to the faint. He, in him who has no might, he increases their strength. God, I ain't got no strength, but you promised to give me some. I'm trusting you to bring it. You know, someone's gossiping about me, spreading lies about me. Okay, God, I believe Romans 12, 19. Never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, he promises, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. Okay, I'm going to trust you to judge for me. I talked to someone last week who took a really important nursing exam, and they felt like they didn't do well, felt like they failed. You know what they said to me? I'm leaning into the promises of God today because I'm using nursing as a vehicle to serve and worship King Jesus. And so if I, if I pass or I fail, I still get to worship and serve King Jesus in the meantime, whether I'm a nurse or not. And I can just take the test again. You know, that is some gospel chill. And I, I just want you to know you got... <laughs> Here's something I've learned. Your maturity, your faith, its development is not determined by how much content you know, how many verses you've memorized, or if you know how many books are in the Bible, or how long you've been going to this church. Your maturity is determined by your faith when life isn't going well. Your maturity is determined by how much you lean into the promises of God when things aren't going the way you want them to. That is mature faith. Are you able to not freak out when life is on, on the rails? And I also want to say to you, if you're here and you're not a Christian, I, first of all, we're really glad you're here. But you've got to know, you have no promises. The only promise you have is that God will come to judge you and hold you accountable for your sins. But his precious promises are available to you. Paul says in 2 Corinthians that all of God's promises, every single one of them, are yes in Christ Jesus. You go to Jesus, he is the key that unlocks all of them for you. And that is the source of our gospel chill. His promises. Even when things look rough like they did for Paul. That's the real don't worry, be happy. And it actually works. We lean into his promises. They comfort us in times of struggle. And then, this is really encouraging, his providence comforts us in times of silence. Maybe you feel like God is silent in your life right now. You've been praying about something. You've been hoping God would change something, and he just hasn't. Well, can you just look with me at this text? I mean, this is remarkable. If you scan verses 12 to 25, do you know there's no mention of God at all? There's no mention of the Father. There's no mention of Jesus Christ. There's no mention of the Holy Spirit. And there's no miracles. We, so, we see no active activity of God in the text, and yet God is at work. 
You know, this, this story is a lot like the book of Esther in the Old Testament. You remember that story? Esther is a story about uh, this beautiful uh, woman, his Jewish girl, favorite girl. Uh, she becomes a Persian queen and saves her Jewish kindred. Did you know in that book, the name of God isn't even mentioned once? And yet God is quietly at work the entire time, saving the people of Israel, using and saving Esther. You see, this narrative in Acts is a reminder to us, and you've got to hear this, do not mistake the silence of God for the inactivity of God. Oh, you need to hear that again. Come on, I'm not getting enough amens for that one. Do not mistake the silence of God for the inactivity of God. Because God's quiet hand is always at work in your life, whether you see it or not. There are no lightning bolts in Acts 23. There's no burning bushes. There's no plague sent down from heaven to to destroy the Sanhedrin. And yet, God is constantly providing for Paul through a little boy, through a conversation that's a little too loud, and a Roman tribune. Everything from children to conversations to commanders are under the authority of God's providence for his people. Never mistake the lack of the spectacular for the inactivity of God in your life. So we can have comfort, we can have gospel chew, because his promises are true and they will come, become fulfilled in our lives. And they comfort us in times of struggle. And his providence, his quiet hand comforts us in times where he feels like he's silent. Because he is working. And the second and last point, we see that the supremacy of God gives us boldness in the Christian life. As we move to the next section, we're introduced to this governor named Felix who's in Caesarea. He's the governor of the region, and Felix is not a great guy. He's he's a wicked dude. He's so wicked, in fact, that Nero, the Roman emperor, thought Felix was wicked. Nero, you know, the guy who burned Rome and blamed the Christians? Nero, the guy who had dinner parties and used Christians burned alive as lanterns for his dinner parties? That Nero called Felix wicked. So we got a pretty bad guy here. He's right up there with people who go to the gym sauna naked. I just don't understand. Like, where am I supposed to sit if you're naked and we're in this small hot box together, man? Please put some clothes on. That is the worst. Paul isn't under the hands of a corrupt judge. Well, Felix receives Paul and uh, Lysias, the Roman Tribune's army, and Lysias writes a letter to Felix about Paul, essentially saying, hey, you handle this situation because I don't know what to do. He says in verse 26, Claudius Lysias to his excellency, the governor Felix, greetings. This man, Paul, was seized by the Jews, and they were about to kill him when I came upon them with the soldiers and rescued him, having learned that he was a Roman citizen. Oh, really, Lysias, you rescued him, did you? Last time I checked, you had Paul spread out about to flog him. And he said, I'm a Roman citizen. And Lysias was like, oh, crap. I should not have done that. But this is typical Roman politics flattery, just lying to make yourself look better. Verse 28, desiring to know the charge for which they were accusing him, Lysias says, I brought Paul down to the Jewish Sanhedrin council. I found that he was being accused about questions of their law, but charged with nothing deserving death or imprisonment. Translation, Lysias, the Roman tribune, says he's being accused by these Jewish leaders, but he's innocent. He didn't do anything wrong. Verse 30, when it was disclosed to me that there would be a plot against the man, assassination attempt, I sent him to you, Felix, at once, ordering his accusers also to state before you what they have against him. And so that's what happens next. There's a trial. Paul is under the judge, Felix, this guy who's determining Paul's fate. And the Sanhedrin brings charges against Paul, and they hire a lawyer named Tertullus to be the prosecuting attorney. But really, what we're going to find is this whole scenario is flipped. Because Paul is not the one on trial. Felix, the judge, is the one on trial before God. So the Sanhedrin, I'm going to summarize just to be brief, hires Tertullus, and Tertullus speaks on behalf of the Jewish Sanhedrin, prosecuting Paul, and he calls him, oh, most excellent Felix. Though, through you, Felix, we're enjoying much peace, he says, and all this is flattery. It's not true. In fact, Felix was said, it was said of Felix that he would take beautiful pastures, turn them into deserts, and call, them, call that peace. Felix was known for besieging cities, starving people out, burning the forestry around those cities. That's the kind of peace Felix brought. But this lawyer, you know, he's just saying what he needs to say to win the case. This is an episode of Better Call Tertullus. We got a corrupt lawyer here. 
And Tertullus claims his charge is that Paul is a plague. He's disturbing the peace. He's causing riots. Which, by the way, this is a great uh, legal strategy because Felix, the governor, was responsible for enforcing the Pax Romana, which was the, the Roman rule of peace. Even though this is not true, Paul was not starting any riots. The, the, the crowds were, the Sanhedrin was. Tertullus continues and says, Paul is the ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes, which, by the way, is such a baller title. The ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. I had someone ask me last week, what, what denomination is your church? And I'm going to start saying this. We are in the sect of the Nazarenes, my guy. I am one of the ringleaders of the sect of the Nazarenes. <laughs> Come drink our Kool-Aid. Uh, <laughs> it sounds a little cultish, but it's pretty cool, too. Um, Paul gets a chance to defend himself. And you know, here's what's so interesting. Paul is so calm, isn't he? He's got that gospel chill. His life is under attack. He's, on, he's in a corrupt court being prosecuted. Have you ever been in court? That is intimidating, man. I remember being in court for like a, a 10 mile over the speed limit ticket. And I'm like sweating. Please, oh marvelous judge, don't convict me. I can't afford the $50 fine. You know what I mean? This guy might die, and he's chill. And notice, he, Paul, in his defense against these charges, does not suck up at all to, like Tortullus does. Why? Because when your father runs the universe, you don't find it necessary to grovel. Paul says in verse 10, And when the governor had nodded to Paul to speak, Paul replied, Knowing that for many years you have been a judge over this nation, I cheerfully make my defense, which, by the way, this verse is hilarious to me. You see what Paul says? Tertullus is like, oh, marvelous judge. Oh, peacekeeping judge. Oh, wise, great one. Paul's like, you are a judge. <laughs> this kind of reminds me of that episode of The Office. You remember that where, where uh, Dwight Schrute is in charge of the party planning committee, and he throws a, a birthday party for Kelly, and, you know, the, the, the party room is full of halfly inflated brown balloons, and on the, there's a banner on the wall that says, it is your birthday. <laughs> Paul is like, you are a judge. <laughs> He's not trying to flatter anyone, man. He's speaking the truth. Again, his dad is on the throne. So you don't feel the need to lie or, or suck up. Paul defends himself, and it culminates in verse 19 where Paul says, If there are witnesses, they ought to be here before you to make an accusation, should they have anything against me. Basically, he's like, this is Paul's mic drop moment. If there's a hater in the crowd, point them out. Who you got with charges against me? Show me your eyewitnesses. Show me your evidence. You have none. I'm innocent. I mean, you think the Adnan Saeed serial case is bad. This is worse. And then we see, even though Paul's innocent, we see Felix's corruption in action. Look at verse 22. But Felix, having a rather accurate knowledge of the way, probably from his wife, Drusilla, he put them off saying, when Lysias the Tribune come down, I will decide your case. Basically, Felix is delaying the verdict. He's saying, we'll just put you in prison and we'll figure it out later. And as we often say, justice delayed is justice denied. And Lysias never shows up. He doesn't have to. He wrote the letter saying Paul's innocent. But Felix is using this as an excuse to not make a verdict. What is Felix doing? He's holding on to Paul. Why is he holding on to Paul? Well, look at the end of the, of the section, verse 27. It says, Felix wanted to do the Jews a favor. There's more corruption, more politics. He knows Paul's innocent, but he wants to use Paul as a political trade chip with the Jews. So he's just going to delay. Verse 23, then he gave orders to the centurion that Paul should be kept in custody but have some liberty and that none of his friends should be prevented from attending to his needs. How generous. You're going to keep me in prison, but I can have people visit me. Eh, okay. Now watch, this is the very last part. And I just want, I want us to, to see, this is the last paragraph. This little paragraph is so rich and so helpful for us in our anxiety. Look at the boldness of Paul. Verse 24, after some days... Paul's in prison. Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, which, by the way, Drusilla, that sounds like an evil Disney villain. <laughs> Felix and Drusilla. This is very ominous. She was Jewish, and he sent, Felix sent for Paul and heard him speak. Here's an honest, honest, honest question for you to consider. Just be real with me for a second. You're in jail, 
And the governor, the judge who's determining your fate says, all right, I want you to come talk to me. He's going to decide whether you're let go from prison, killed, or kept in prison. Here's your one chance. What are you going to talk to him about? If I'm honest, I'm going to be like, hey, Felix, you know, I'm, I didn't do anything wrong. Why don't you let me go? You know, I feel like in our culture, there'd be like so much, this is an injustice. How dare you? Off with his head. I would be talking about so many other things, but look what, do you see what Paul talks about? Here's just one chance to talk to the guy who determines his life. He says, he talks about faith in Christ Jesus. Isn't that what Paul was preaching everywhere? He preached it in the slums, he preached it in the town square, and he preaches it from the jail cell. Faith in Christ Jesus. And if you're here and you're not a Christian, this is the point of why we're here. The good news of the gospel is that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. It's what we preach publicly and it's what we preach privately. How do you become a Christian? Faith in Christ Jesus. He doesn't tell Felix, it's faith and do a bunch of these other things. No, just throw yourself on his mercy. He saves. King, if you will repent and place your faith in Jesus, you're saved. That's it. Felix doesn't deserve this good news, does he? He's wicked, but yet neither do we. And notice how Paul gets to the good news. He starts with the bad news. Verse 25, he, he reasoned, Paul reasoned with Felix about righteousness, self-control, and the coming judgment. I mean, is there any better three topics than those three? <laughs> righteousness, self-control, and the coming judgment. I mean, I, that's hard enough to talk about with my neighbor, let alone the guy who's determining what to do with my life. And if the governor called me and said, I want, I want to talk to you, honestly, I'd probably sound a lot more like Tertullus. Oh, great, excellent, merciful, peacekeeping judge. Paul's like, you are a judge. <laughs> and I want to talk to you about righteousness, self-control, and the coming judgment. Uh, we got an email last week from, uh, if you don't know, they're filming in Baltimore City this this t Apple Plus TV series called Lady in the Lake, I think it's called. It's starring Natalie Portman. They're, they're, they've been filming all throughout Baltimore City. Well, the production crew actually emailed uh, us, emailed me this week, and said, we are interested in filming a scene at your building. And I said, well, that'd be great. Um, also, I'm available. I was great in my sixth grade play, so uh, you can talk to my agent, Jen Yoon. She will negotiate the contract. <laughs> anyway, they sent like this, this scout team, this production scout team to, to scout out our building, and they actually looked at the roof, and they were like, oh, this is really promising. We actually film here at the building, and so we're, we're, we're one of the final candidates. I'll, I'll keep you updated. Um, funny story, actually. Do you know the, the original movie Hairspray? Oh, there's a scene in that movie in this building, or of this building. So we're just adding to the, the, the credits. <laughs> Um, and, I, you know, I was just thinking, like, let's imagine they say they want to use us, and Natalie Portman comes to our building, and she films a scene here, and I get one chance to talk to her. What am I going to talk to her about? <laughs> yeah, someone in the first service was like, righteousness, self-control, and the coming judgment. <laughs> I'd like to say I would, but I'm pretty sure I wouldn't. Because to be honest, I don't think I'd have the courage to tell her that Star Wars Episode One wasn't very good, <laughs> let alone the coming judgment. <laughs> and what blows my mind is I'm nervous about that. With Natalie Portman, she's someone of, of esteem. And Natalie, if you're here, I'm sorry. We, we, we're glad you're here. <laughs> if you're watching. I'd be nervous to talk to her about those things. Paul is standing before a guy just as prominent in his age, not only just who's famous, but who controls his life. And he says, hey, judge, you're going to be judged by God. And, and he's essentially saying, you can't do anything to me because I've already been judged at Golgotha. The judgment of me that I deserved fell upon Christ. He bore my punishment. 
And the worst thing you can do to me, Judge, is to kill me. And that would be the best thing that ever happened to me because then I get to be with him. The question, Judge, is not what you do with me. It's what are you going to do with you? How are you going to answer to the true judge who gave you the power you have right now? He's telling Felix he's going to be in the hands of holy God. And he's saying you can be saved from the coming judgment by turning to Christ. It's either judgment or Jesus. Choose. He's, Paul's laying it all out there, man. He's bold. He's not bending to the king. How do you and I get that kind of boldness where we can go up to Natalie Portman and talk about Righteousness, self-control, and the coming judgment. We get that kind of boldness when we believe in the supremacy authority of, and authority of Jesus Christ. Believing that is what makes you bold. In the Great Commission, Jesus says, all authority in heaven on earth is where? It's given to me. It's mine. I made it and I own it. Therefore, that therefore is there for a reason. Therefore, go and tell everyone about me that I want to reconcile sinners to a holy God through my sacrifice. Since he is the sovereign ruler of the universe, we have the authority to be bold and go. When you believe that, you go hard. You know, I used to travel with a friend who spoke at you know, Christian conferences, and he would often be in green rooms, you know, those little rooms you hang out with, and you get free snacks and hang out with the famous speakers, and, and I would go with him, but I would never be, like, allowed to be there, so when I was in those green rooms, I was, like, in the corner, I tried not to make any noise, I didn't talk to anybody, I wouldn't grab any of the snacks, I'd just be there, because I, I don't feel like I'm authorized to be there. Well, last month I got an opportunity to, to be one of the speakers at a church planning conference. You know, my name is on the, on the, on the uh, schedule, and I got a banner with my name, and they got a green room. And the, and the conference organizer says, oh, go check out the green room. We got a bunch of stuff for you. You know, all these speakers are in there. And you better believe, man, I was in there. Aquafina or Fiji water? <laughs> ah, we'll do both. Let's try. These taste the same. I don't understand. You know, like I'm trying tea and coffee. Hey, Adam, get in here, man. Come on. We got some cookies. Hey, hey, uh, Sherry and, and Jen, you guys want some cookies? We got your cookie. Brown sugar, chocolate chip. Oh, no, obviously not oatmeal raisin. You, what kind of cookies you want? I'm like, hey, what's up, man? Like up to the speakers. Why? What's different? Authority. I have the authority to be there. And the king of the universe says, you have green room access to declare the gospel to everyone on this earth. So why are you acting like you're not allowed to? Why are you afraid of people's responses when the king has already told you to go? You know, there's a famous preacher in the, in the 1800s named Peter Cartwright. He was preaching one time and the people in his church said, hey, Peter, you need to take it easy today because the future president, Andrew Jackson, is in the audience. Well, Peter Cartwright strolled on up to the pulpit like I am right now. And you know what he said? He said, quote, I've heard Andrew Jackson is in the audience. Well, I want to tell Andrew Jackson that if he hasn't repented and believed in Jesus, he's going to split hell wide open. <laughs> you hear that, Natalie? <laughs> I'm so sorry. I'm just kidding. You get the idea. Andrew Jackson actually came up after the service to Peter Cartwright and said to, to uh, Peter, if I had soldiers half as brave as you, I could take over the world. Andrew Jackson actually appreciated the honesty. Well, that's Paul, isn't it? He's got this unbendable spirit. Who's in the audience? I don't care. Because the king gave me green room access. His authority has sent me to declare this news. So I have boldness. And before God, we are all, all of us, laid naked. We are all together bare before His holiness. God shows no partiality towards anyone. His judgment is just and pure and holy. And there is one hope. And you, you flee to Him for refuge. Jesus is our one hope. He is everybody's hope. And we are not loving people if we don't tell people about Him. From the highest of high to society to the lowest of low. 
Paul's faithfully bold because he believes God is supreme, but it doesn't go well. Felix doesn't respond. He was alarmed, which, which happens a lot. Like you hear a sermon, oh, I'm alarmed, I'm convicted, but nothing really, no repentance happens. Verse 25, Felix says, go away for the present, Paul. When I get an opportunity, I'll summon you. Oh, when he gets an opportunity. Sounds like a lot of people I know. More procrastination. Felix syndrome is saying, I'll get around to that Jesus thing eventually. When I, get, when I graduate from college. Well, actually, no. When I get married, then I will. Actually, no. When my kids are born. Actually, no. When I retire, then I'll take Jesus seriously. Actually, no. It's too late. I'm in the grave. Verse 26, it says that at the same time, Felix hoped that money would be given to him by Paul. So Felix sent for Paul often and conversed with him. You get this impression that day after day, Paul is boldly going to the governor, proclaiming the good news of Jesus. And Felix, is he wants a bribe. He doesn't want a sermon. He wants Paul to pay him to get out. Felix loves money more than he loves Jesus. And he thinks he's in control of his time. Felix thinks he's a self-made man. And he loves his career more than he loves the gospel. That's why verse 27 says, When two years had elapsed, Felix was succeeded by Portius Festus and desiring to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. Why does he do that corrupt thing, leave an innocent man in jail? He's trying to preserve his career. He loves his career more than he loves Jesus. You see, my friends, this is how not to accept the word. I want money. I want career. I'll do it eventually when I get an opportunity. We should learn from Felix, shouldn't we? We should tremble before a holy God. If you're here and you're not a Christian, we just want to say to you, this is the good news. If you believe on the Lord Jesus, you will be saved. You will be given his righteousness. You will be given his Holy Spirit that gives you self-control, and you will be saved from the coming judgment. And you'll get the boldness of Paul and the gospel chill of Paul. You'll get a real don't worry, be happy that works. Because our biggest problem, our sin, has been solved. It's been taken care of. And all my other problems seem a lot less smaller compared to that one. I just want to say to you, don't make the mistake of Felix thinking time is on your side. Because it's not. It's really not. Felix could not say, I never heard the gospel. He heard it frequently for two years. And there's no indication that he ever believed. My wife, Sherry, and I were um, at a conference a couple um, months ago, and we heard a sermon on evangelism at that conference. And, man, it was powerful. And we feel like we're pretty evangelistic people. We share the gospel regularly with our neighbors, but we felt like, man, we really, I don't know if we're really acting with the boldness of Paul here. And so we said, you know what? We have a neighbor named Tony that we love. He lives like five feet from my house. He's actually a strip club, strip club bouncer, which uh, interesting career path. It, great to have as a neighbor, because whenever my packages get stolen, bouncer Tony steps up. What are you doing with my package? Get out of here. You know, a little bit more profane, but he's a great neighbor. When he sees my kids, he says, what's up? He's even given my kids a gift before, and we've, we've all, you know, dapped it up. What's up, my guy? And but I never actually shared the gospel with him like I have with my other neighbors. And we came home from that conference saying, you know what? There's a bar called JP's that Tony's at like every night. I'm going to go to the bar, get a beer with him, and share the gospel with him. I want to hear his life story. And Sherry's like, yeah, after that, maybe we can invite him for dinner for another night. And we can all hear his story together and share the gospel with him. And we were pumped up. Like, we're going to go home. We're going to be faithful to share the gospel with this guy. The night we got home. There were ambulances on my street at 2 a.m. in the morning. Tony was found dead at 51 years old. He died in his sleep. I really feel like I took tomorrow for granted with Tony. I know God's sovereign. I know he saves whoever he wants to save. He doesn't need me to share the gospel to save somebody. But I feel like I wasn't bold and faithful like Paul was here. And I realized I'm letting stress, all the people that want to meet with me and all the to-dos, get in the way of the most important thing God called me to do. Tell him, tell others about him. And I think about Tony. He probably thought he had tomorrow. 
He th- probably thought, yeah, I love God, but I'll take him seriously later, and he didn't. I don't know that Tony was a Christian. I don't think he was. And if that's true, he is eternally separated from God right now. Is there anything more important in my life than being bold, not letting myself be overwhelmed by the stress of this life and just sharing? I want to be like Paul, like Jesus. This text shows us that we can the sovereignty of God gives us comfort. His promise comforts us in times of struggle. His providence comforts us in times of silence. And his supremacy gives us boldness. Maybe as we close, you're in a trial this morning. You know, Paul was in jail, innocent in jail for two years. Maybe you feel like you're in a prison season right now. Well, did you know that many scholars believe Luke and Paul compiled the book of Acts while Paul was in prison in this season? You might be in prison right now, but God is doing something that you might not be aware of that lasts for generations, like he did with Luke and Paul. And I want to encourage you, even though there might not be spectacular acts of God in your life right now, don't confuse that for the inactivity of God. And whether you're going through small things or big things, you can trust him this morning. And you can be bold in the meantime. He is supreme, he is preeminent, and he loves us. So we should thank him. Let's turn to him this morning. Lord Jesus, we believe what you say in Proverbs. That man plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. We believe that you are sovereign, authoritative over the universe. May your sovereignty comfort us this morning. May we lean into the truth of your promises and have a gospel chill. Knowing you are faithful, you will do it for us. And may we not confuse your silence for your inactivity. And may we be a people who are bold because you sent us, you gave us green room access. And if there's anyone here that doesn't know Jesus, Lord, I pray that they would not delay like Felix. That you would bring them before the foot of your throne, convict their heart. Help them to repent of their sin and receive the grace of Jesus Christ. And may their life be changed through you. We believe you'll do that today. We believe someone's getting saved today. And we believe you want to save someone through our bold proclamation today and this week. We believe it. Do it, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. If you were encouraged by today's message, be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you stream your podcasts. To find other messages or get more information about Redemption City Church, visit us online at rccbaltimore.org. Thank you for listening to the Redemption City Church Podcast.